All right, good morning, church. We're moving through the book of Ephesians, so turn back to Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15, if you'd follow along as I read. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the mighty working of his strength, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So let me invite you to think about this question with me for just a second. What, what does God want most for your life? What does God want most for your life? So scripture teaches us that the answer to that question is God wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with us, right? The way that the Bible tells the human story is basically this. God made us in his image and he made us to know him. But human beings, we turned our back on him a long, long time ago. And ever since God has been seeking us, God has been seeking to bring that relationship back online to be reconciled, for us to be reconciled to him. That, that is the basic story of Christianity. It is the central story of the Bible that God, the father sent Jesus Christ, his son, to come and live in this world a perfect life, the life that we didn't live and couldn't live, to die on the cross in our place as our substitute and then to rise again so that everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and turns to him to follow him, we're brought into that relationship so that believing in him, as John said when we studied John's gospel, we might have life in his name. We might have now life with God that starts now and lasts forever. That's eternal life. That's what that's all about. So, so let's say you do that. Let's say you believe that message, the Christian gospel. You believe that message. Now what happens, right? You say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Now what? So what does God want now? And this passage answers that question. Now that I'm following Jesus, now that I've believed in him and have faith in Jesus Christ, what does God want most for my life? And the reason we can hear our passage answering that question is because we're listening to the Apostle Paul praying for new believers. He said, I've heard about your faith in Jesus and here's what I'm praying for you. Here's what I'm praying happens next in your life. And, and just remember, um, the reason I said that, framed it up by saying, what does God want most? Is this isn't just the Apostle Paul praying out of his own heart and mind. He's writing these words under divine inspiration. So we're not just hearing the heart of an apostle. We're hearing the heart of God. This is what God wants now that you believe in him. So I put in, in your notes, if you're using that, the flow of the passage kind of goes like this. 
This is Paul writing, Ephesian Jesus followers, I heard about your faith, so the journey has begun. I heard about your love for one another. So that early sign of faith is if, if you say you love God and you don't love your brother, then, then it's not real. He says, but you do. You love Jesus and you love your brother. And he says, I can't stop thanking God for this. Those are God's fingerprints at the church at Ephesus. But here's what I'm asking God to do now in you. This is how you'll grow moving forward. And then he prays. And what does he pray? He says, that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that God would enable your heart, the eyes of your heart to see things, the eyes of your heart to see the hope of his calling, to see the wealth of his inheritance in the saints and to see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So in this passage is tucked uh, the secret of growth. Once you consider the flow of this passage, what God is saying in his word, you get an insight into what makes growth possible. Number one, realize you haven't arrived. Realize you haven't arrived. So, so Paul is praying for five blessings in this passage. Wisdom and revelation, an enlightened heart, hope, the wealth of God's glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And you might wonder why he's praying these things for believers when in previous verses, just in the section that we looked at last week in verses 3 through 14, Paul says that we've already received in Christ every spiritual blessing from God in the heavenlies has already been unloaded into the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. So why would Paul pray for every for five spiritual blessings when he already said those five and all the rest of them are already ours in Christ. Well, I think the answer to that is, is this. It's possible, if you're a believer in Jesus, I think we can all acknowledge this. It's possible for truth to live in our heads but not show up in our lives. It's possible for, for our theology to outrun our experience, right? You can, for example, you can know the word, the Biblical word sanctification has to do with you being changed by the Holy Spirit and yet not be changed. Knowing something doesn't necessarily transmit to a heart knowledge of it, to a, to a life experience of that truth. The point being, you and I, Christian friends, you, you and I can stop short of the full experience of life that God has for us in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is gunning for under divine inspiration in this text. I love how there's an author and a theologian. He's one of the finest, in my judgment, I think he's one of the finest theologians alive today. A guy by the name of Fred Sanders. He teaches at Biola University. He writes this. A gospel which is only about the moment of conversion but does not extend to every moment of life in Christ is too small. A gospel that gets your sins forgiven but offers no power for transformation is too small. A gospel that isolates one of the benefits of union with Christ and ignores all the others is too small. A gospel that rearranges the components of your life but does not put you personally in the presence of God is too small. I think the Apostle Paul would say a hearty, Amen to what Sanders is writing there. Because Paul is saying here, I'm glad that you believed. I'm glad that you love your church. I'm glad that you love your faith family. But friends, 
The journey's just begun. You haven't arrived. The, the, the Christian life is still way out front. There's more ahead. It's one thing to, to have something, and it's another to know you have it. I want us to hold on to that. It's one thing to have something. It's another to know you have it. So bear in mind the way that Paul leverages that idea. So in verse 11, which we were looking at last week, in verse 11, Paul says, we have received an inheritance. And then here in our text, in verse 18, he says, I want you to know what is the wealth of your inheritance. It's one thing to have something. It's another to know that you have it. Let me use an example. So every believer in Jesus Christ has assurance of salvation, has assurance of God's acceptance through Jesus. Not every believer knows it. Not, not every believer lives in the good of the truth that we've been justified by faith, not by works. Once and for all, that declaration has already come in and there's no condemnation, right? Maybe we're not living in the good of that at the level of our experience. That's what Paul's talking about. Christianity, friends, just for, for us to remember and to clarify again, Christianity isn't you and me or whoever nodding yes to a certain number of doctrinal formulas, to certain uh, shared facts about events in history. It's not, Christianity isn't just nodding yes to concepts. Truth is meant to make an impression on our lives, on our hearts, to, to cause God's peace to come flooding into our lives, to increase our trust in God, right? So these truths are are put in scripture for a reason. They're meant to make a difference in my life, my heart at the command center of my life. Especially the, the truths of the gospel, the truths that are at the core of the Bible, truth about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. When I was a kid, uh, my, my grandpa loved golfing and he even worked part-time at, uh, at a golf course nearby his house on the West Bank of New Orleans. And he would bring us out. And then sometimes on Sunday afternoons when we'd go to Papa and Mama's house, we'd watch golf. And I remember watching Jack Nicholas was the guy. Like he was, he was the greatest golfer, I think, at the time. And one of the things that I learned later on was an interesting story about Jack Nicholas. Even when he was at the absolute top of his game, the top of the world in his game, he... Uh, he would do something every single year, right before the tour would begin. He would go back to his teacher, the teacher uh, who taught him golf from the age of 10 years old, Jack Grout. And he would go back to Jack Grout and, and guess what he'd say every single year of his golf career. He'd go to Jack Grout and he'd say, teach me to play golf. And what would Grout do? Grout would say, okay, get in your stance. Let me see your grip. And they would review grip, Stance, swing, grip, stance, swing. And Paul's prayer here is, is the Christian's grip, stance, and swing. He's going right back to the basics. The secret of growth isn't some new spiritual circus trick. It's grip, stance, swing. And if you want to grow in Christ, and I want to grow in Christ, you need to realize you haven't arrived. And in that same sense of Jack Nicholas coming back to the teacher and saying, teach it to me again, as though this is our first lesson. Show me the fundamentals. How do I grow? Two, 
Number two, pray for word-driven wisdom and deep knowledge of God. Pray for word-driven wisdom and deep knowledge of God. Look at the language he uses there in verse 17. He prays for wisdom and revelation. Don't miss this. In the knowledge of God. Wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So that's a mouthful. So let's review some of the basics of what that's going after and think about it in terms of application for our lives as Christians. So where do we get wisdom? Hopefully in your living room or wherever it is that you're gathering, hopefully maybe you even said it out loud. Where do we get wisdom? God's word. Another answer is the Bible. The scriptures, all of those are good answers. They all mean the same thing. The the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God's word brings us wisdom. The apostle Paul writing to his protege, young Timothy, in his ministry. And he says, Timothy, you from childhood, you were acquainted with the sacred writings, the Bible. You were acquainted from childhood with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation. So what's what's this mean and how does it relate to our growth? This is in our notes. The posture of those who want God's wisdom is a bended knee before God's word. It's a heart posture that enables us to learn. God runs to the contrite in heart. He runs to the humble. He teaches the teachable his way. And Paul is not, bear in mind, he's not just praying for wisdom in general. He's not just praying for, you know, practical, like financial savvy, although God's word does speak and inform every aspect of wisdom and how we live in this world. But Paul's not just praying for wisdom in general. He's praying for wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is biblical, God-oriented who God is, this is the heart of all wisdom. What did, what did scripture say in, in Proverbs 9? Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One, understanding. You, according to scripture in the ancients, right? You, you can't even take your first step in the school of wisdom until you fear the Lord and until you are growing in the knowledge of him. The, the Bible and prayer is how we relate to God, right? It, it's, an, it's God's invitation to a relationship. Talked earlier about what does God want most for your life? He wants a relationship with you. How does that relationship play out? Well, there's a number of things that we could talk about there from Scripture. But Scripture and prayer. God says, I want a relationship with you. Trust in Jesus, the Savior that I sent. And in trusting in him, I'm going to give you my word. That's how I'm going to talk to you. And then I'm going to give you the gift of prayer. That's how you're going to talk to me. So let's talk to each other. I'll talk to you in scripture. You talk to me in prayer. That's how the relationship fires. It's, it's operative. The apostle Paul, he's praying here for what theologians have called for centuries, the doctrine of illumination. That's the term that's often Used. If that sounds kind of like a secret society or something, it's, it's not that. Um, but it's that doctrine of illumination. Here's what I, I put in our notes so we could hold on to this. The term illumination means basically this. We can't grasp God's word without the help of God's spirit. That's why we need illumination. That's why we need, to, to use Paul's exact words here, we need him to enlighten our 
the eyes of our heart. Open our eyes so that we can see things. Because scripture, as Paul says in another place in Corinthians, um, God's truth is spiritually discerned. It's not just something you, you just come to the book with logic in hand and the tools of intellect. Uh, John Calvin, the, the Protestant reformer from the 16th century, had staggering intellectual abilities. He was the, the quiet one in the group of the Protestant reformers. And when they first brought him on their sort of debate tour, they were traveling around engaging people in the Christian ideas. And they went to Lausanne in 1536. And this became Calvin's sort of, uh, sort of opening day because he was sitting there quietly as the debate raged on. There was a, just a handful of Protestant reformers and a whole room full of Catholic scholars. And at one point in that debate in Lausanne, uh, one of the Catholic scholars said, why do your views never occur in church history until now? It does, isn't that suspect? that your ideas are brand new. He says, the early church, centuries of the church, stand with our interpretation of the Bible at this point. And, and here is where even though three days of silence, John Calvin could not be silent anymore because his colleagues did not have an answer to that question. John Calvin, his expertise was in early church history. And so Calvin stood up and in that moment, he began citing from memory extensive passages. He said in chapter three, and he named the volume from Augustine, and he quoted verbatim all the way to the end of the chapter. He did the same thing with Tertullian. He did the same thing with Chrysostom. And he just goes on and on, quoting at length with no notes, verbatim, by memory, massive extended thoughts from earlier centuries of the church. And his defense of the faith that day was so powerful that one priest defrocked himself, like divested himself of his priestly service in that moment. 200 other priests would join him by the end of the week. So John Calvin, for, he had tremendous abilities theologically and, and mental and intellectual capacity. He had a brilliant mind. But when he came to God's word, he didn't come as an academic. He, for all of his intellectual gifts, he came to scripture praying a lot like Paul here, praying for illumination. He, he even wrote a poem that's come down to us through the centuries and it captured his approach to the reading of scripture. Here's what he would say in his heart or even out loud. These words, come Holy Ghost, for moved by thee the prophets wrote and spoke. Unlock the truth, thyself the key, unseal the sacred book, this heart of humility. God, enlighten my eyes that I might see. You don't have to write a poem. You don't have to use that poem, right? You can just simply say, use these words and pray, God, give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. God, I want to know you better today in your word. Help me, Holy Spirit, help me to do that. So here's a question for us. Is your knowledge of God leading you to embrace his wisdom? Not just an academic exercise of knowing more things. Is your knowledge of God leading you to trust him, leading you to embrace his wisdom? Is your intake of God's word leading to worship of God, leading to obedience toward his word? Ask for that. That's how we grow. That's a secret of growth. So you want to grow? Realize you haven't arrived Pray for wisdom and knowledge of God. And third, 
pray for a heart that reads all of life through the lens of hope. Pray for a heart that reads all of life through the lens of hope. So hope comes in, he uses that word hope, but notice how the whole prayer that Paul prays here for them is pointing these believers to a future that is filled with grace, to future grace of God toward these believers. There is a confident air in these prayers, the hope of God's calling, the wealth of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. That's you, saints. It's Paul's favorite word for Ephesian believers. He calls them saints like nine times in this short book. He's praying for the immeasurable greatness of God's power. That's, that's yours to experience. It's toward us who believe. So faith and future grace creates the beautiful thing that is Christian hope. Faith that grace isn't just something from the past, but grace is for our present and grace is marking our future. We're confident in that and that uh, creates, is meant to produce through the work of the Holy Spirit, something called hope. Paul is saying, believers, look what you have in Christ. Look at your inheritance. He says, look where your life is going in Christ, the hope of his calling. So how does, how does Paul's prayer nurture hope? By reminding us of a few things. Number one, we have purpose. It reminds us of this. We have purpose. What is what does Paul mean when he uses that phrase? He wants believers to know uh, the hope of his calling, right? We have to understand the word calling and the way that the Apostle Paul uses that word. So most places where, where the Apostle Paul uses the word calling, he's referring to an act of God uh, that brings sinful people out of death, out of indifference to God, and into life with God, it, out of death and into life. Paul writes these words in another place in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul says this, For God who said, and this is Genesis 1, let light shine out of darkness. The God who created and turned the lights on and said, let there be light, and there was light. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying there? As effective as God's words on day one in creation when he said, let there be light and there was light. The Apostle Paul says, God spoke in that same way in your heart as a believer. He said, let there be light and there was light. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It is a, it, it, causes something to happen. This call of God brings into being something that wasn't there before. It's kind of like when you, uh, when you were a kid and you slept in through your, your alarm clock for school and mom came down the hall and she knocked on the door, right? Or maybe she just busted right through it because it was too late and she yelled, wake up, right? And the, the way that it was spoken, it was spoken in a way that brought about the effect that was commanded. The, the call, wake up, woke you. In that same way, that's exactly what Paul is talking about. The, when God says, wake up, it wakes us. It's a powerful, effective call. So, so that's what God does. He awakens us. But notice here, Paul is not talking about the call itself, the calling itself. He's talking about, his language, the hope 
of God's calling, the hope of his calling. So Paul's not mainly saying here, I want God to show you that he woke you up the day you believed. This is Paul saying, I want God to show you why, why you made the wake up list, why you're alive to God, the hope of his calling, why you're awake to God. What does God have in store for you now that you believe? Now that you're alive to God, what does he have for your life now? What does he have for your eternal future? Why? Because the Christians, we read scripture, we, we learn this more and more, that the Christian lives with a sense of the urgency of eternal things, eternal Truth. Everyone, Christian, understands this, right? As we read scripture, everyone in the world is headed toward heaven or hell, is headed toward eternal judgment or eternal joy, eternal salvation. So there is, there is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to shun. There is a hope that Christians proclaim in this world because we know you, you don't just live once. You live twice. You live once and then you die and then we face the judgment, Hebrews 9 says. And then we're alive forever. In what environment are we alive? In, in judgment or in salvation, in, in mercy or in judgment, right? That defines the life of the Christian. Even not just the proclamation of the gospel in, in mission, which is utterly vital, but even the Christian's suffering is affected by the biblical truth about our hope. The Christian lives with hope even in the midst of trials, even in tribulation, even in loss, right? Weeping may endure for the night, but Christians are learning more and more. Joy comes in the morning. This too shall pass. And, and God even gives us songs in the night now. Songs to sing that remind us of hope. We're marching to Zion. We are headed toward, as Bunyan would say, the celestial city. It is coming. The blessed hope drives the Christian life. The blessed hope doesn't create guilt-driven missionaries, guilt-driven holiness, guilt-driven evangelism, right? The blessed hope fires our hearts with purpose. It, 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 while we have breath, we're going to live for the glory of his name. As Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. That's what blessed hope does. We have purpose. Second, we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. So Paul uses words like from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through the end of our text. He's using words like riches, richly blessed, lavish, inheritance, Wealth, And he's using those terms in a positive way, not a negative way. This, this isn't, Ephesians 1 isn't picturing or portraying God as the pinch penny. God as the, the miserly God. This isn't the God, Ephesians 1 doesn't portray for us the, the God of the, of the desert monk who feels closer and closer to God with every, uh, every time that he renounces an earthly joy. That, that is not Ephesians 1's angle on things. Ephesians portrays God as this generous king who unloads every spiritual blessing in heavenly places on us in Jesus. It's this lavish grace, this massive inheritance. We have an inheritance that is waiting for us. Let me illustrate that. So think with me about, about this. Um, let's say you have two workers Two workers, they work in the same factory, 
They have the same long hours, the same exact 60-hour work week. They do the same dreary work every single day that they go on the job. But they're under contract to work for one year, both of them. One of them is going to make $15,000 at the end of the year. The other one's going to make $15 million. So then I ask you the question, if there were a viewing glass and you could look down and watch these two workers working, do you think you'd know which one is which? The one who's whistling, she's the one with the future. She's the one, she's the one who's set for life. That's the reason she's whistling. Again, the Apostle Paul, he's writing these words about inheritance, about hope. Guess where he is? In a Roman prison. Ephesians 1 is the Apostle Paul himself whistling while he works. He knows I've got an inheritance coming. He knows the hope of his calling. That's why he's able to whistle while he works. It motivates the Christian life. It motivates and empowers Christian perseverance, even in prison, even in quarantine, even in suffering, even in loss. We have purpose. We have an inheritance. Third, we have power for daily living. Sometimes we can speak as if the only thing that Christians can expect, and this can be a reaction to uh, the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is wrong. It's, it's horrible teaching. But sometimes we can react to the prosperity gospel and swing the pendulum all the way to the other side, and we can speak as though the only thing Christians can expect in this life is sin. You're just going to keep sinning, bump into a wall, and suffering. That's the only thing. If we're going to talk about what's real, Sin is real. Suffering is real. I've met Christians who are cynical of the very idea of victory in the Christian life. I've been that Christian. Cynical of the very idea of victory in the Christian life. But friends, hear me. Both Christian perfectionism and Christian defeatism. So Christian, Christians always win theology and Christians always and only lose theology. Those are both seriously defective. Both of them are seriously defective. How? Christian perfectionism, Christians always win theology, is a denial of the reality of indwelling sin and that we live in a fallen world. But Christian defeatism, Christians always lose theology, is a denial of the reality of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Both of those denials have disastrous effects in the life of the Christian who believes them. That's why we need to keep coming to God's word, and learning it in context, understanding what God is saying to us. So Paul says, I pray you will know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Again, it's one thing to have something. It's another to know you have it. He says, I want you to know the power that you have, not just to have the power, but to know that you have this power. We can, we can live beneath the power that is afforded to us by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We can, as Christians, we can justify living, sort of Christian living that operates at sort of the spiritual equivalent of a nine volt battery. We can justify, hey, this is me, wide open, right? This is, this is all I've got. This is all the power we have. And Paul says, let me tell you about this power. Look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength, verse 20, he exercised this power, the power toward you who believe. He exercised this power in Christ 
by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is not a nine volt battery that Paul is plugging you into in this prayer. This is resurrection power. I love how author Eugene Peterson, he, he tries to unpack these words and he does it in this way. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all. And he has the final word on everything. Christian friend, the Christian life is not powered by a nine volt battery. The Christian life is wired to the empty tomb. This is the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. There are lots of people right here in Birmingham who have a form of godliness, but don't have this power that's operative. Their Christianity doesn't change them. And the reason is it's, the full expression of biblical Christianity hasn't been welcomed inside on the terms that God has set, right? Instead of, here's what we do in cultural Christianity, nominal Christianity, Christian in name only, is instead of letting God's truth speak, speak to our sin, unmask our God's substitutes, expose our idolatries, right? Christianity is thought to be in these parts, just a message where, you know, God is, God forgives everybody because that's his job. It's, it's God's job to forgive. Friends, that message doesn't save because that message isn't the Christian message. That, that message doesn't produce new life. It doesn't produce transformed people. It doesn't produce forgiven people. So what is the message? This is the central message of the Christian gospel, of the Christian faith. That God is holy that he made the world and that he made us and he made us in his image so that we could know him in a right relationship with him. And everything was right in the beginning. But then you and I said, the only God that I'm interested in is a God who doesn't invade my private space, is a God who lets me call the shots. It's a God who I can give him the wheel when life gets bad, then I can take the wheel back when I want it, right? Who won't barge in where he's not invited. I want a God who's not gonna invade and tell me my truth isn't his truth, right? That's, that's the God of cultural Christianity. And when we do that, and when we say, these are the terms that I'll have you on, that's you and me shoving God aside. That's not gonna work. Actually, that's gonna bring judgment. And that's, that's what God announces is the wages of sin. When we make an alliance with that way of, of de-godding God, when we make an alliance with that way of life, judgment comes for us. We deserve to be judged. But instead of simply carrying out the sentence and sending us to hell, God sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to live a perfect life, to take our sin, our rebellion, our acts of um, of treason against the God who made us and to take that on himself and die for our sins on the cross. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is God, he is the one 
heaven sent savior. He is my Lord now. And you receive him in that way, right? And you turn from your sin and you trust in this God and you're going to be reconciled to him. Now you have faith in him. The relationship that was broken is now mended by faith in Jesus Christ. And now you get a reset. Your life starts now with God. Life with God starts now. Believe on Christ today. I hope that even while you're watching this, if you're hearing this message and it's never clicked before, I hope it's clicking now. I hope you're understanding this and you're wanting to run to this one Savior, Jesus. And then as you do that, realize what Paul is talking about here. More change is possible than we realized. My good friend, Pastor Thomas Beavers, right here in town, he pastors New Rising Star. And he says something. Every time he addresses his congregation, he says this. He says, to God be the glory for the great things he has done, the great things he is doing, and the great things he will continue to do. And that's my best impression, because that's pretty much how he says it every time. He, what I love, and I was texting him this week and talking about it, I love that he says it. I love the way he says it. He never tires of saying it. It's like he believes it afresh for the first time every time he says it. And I think the reason I bring it up here is I think it's the spirit of our text. I think Paul is saying, I can't stop thanking God for the great things that he has done, for the great things that he is doing, for the great things that he will continue to do. Ephesians 1, friends, is giving us the secret of growth. Put this in our notes just so we could take home. What's the big idea of our text? I think it's this. Now that we're alive to God, today's business is knowing God better and stepping into the day convinced of his promises. Just think about what did our text say to us? Verse 15 and 16 tell us what God has done. Verse 17 tells us who God is. Verse 18 and 19 tells us where God is taking us in the future. And verse 20 to 23 tells us why nobody can stop him. Because he has the power of resurrection. Nobody can stop him from getting glory in my life, your life as an individual Christian. Nobody can stop him from getting glory in the church of Brook Hills.